This podcast is brought to you by The Empowerment Project. Research proves that empowerment self-defense training makes you safer, period. I want you to have a great self-defense toolkit so you can create strong boundaries, speak with confidence, and take up all the space that you deserve in the world. We'll hear stories from survivors and find out what worked for them and why. We'll interview leaders in the field and talk about tips, concepts, and really easy things that you could do to make yourself safer and interrupt the cycle of violence. I've taught self-defense classes for over 30 years, and I promise to teach you everything I know. Ultimately, I'm going to want you to get some in-person training, but a great empowerment self-defense class is more than just the physical skills. The list of things I want to teach you is endless, so let's get to it. My name is Sylvia Smart, and welcome to The Empowerment Project. My guest today is Wim Wetzel. I'll introduce you to him formally in just a bit, but first, I wanted to read you a few stories from his book called Surviving Death by a Thousand Cuts. This first story tells what it was like back in the 50s for a young immigrant to the U.S. in his first few weeks. We went to church every Sunday, and my first experience in Sunday school was a painful one. A strange adult took my hand and led me to an age-appropriate Sunday school room. A small group of boys and girls were sitting around a table giggling and talking to each other in a language that I did not understand. When I walked into the room, silence filled the air and all eyes were on me. The teacher put me on display in front of the room and began talking to the class in a language I could not understand. And when she finished her speech, the class obediently murmured, Hello, Bill. My name is not Bill. I was overcome with panic and dread. All I could hear was the sound of my heart pounding in my ears, growing louder and faster, and I imagined everyone in the room could hear it. The teacher pointed me towards a chair at the end of the table, and ten pairs of eyes followed me to my seat in gawking wonder. Dad was considered Eurasian because his German ancestors had married Indonesian women, and I had inherited some of Dad's Asian features, so most of the children were seeing an Asian for the first time. I sat forcing myself not to make eye contact with anyone in a desperate attempt to ignore their stares. One of the girls spoke to me, but I could not understand her, so I just shrugged and shook my head. She rolled her eyes at my rudeness, then turned and whispered something to the girl next to her. I considered bolting from the room and out of the building, but I knew Dad would punish me severely for embarrassing him. I sat there, willing myself not to cry, but I could feel the tears forming in the corners of my eyes. The teacher smiled sympathetically and handed me a book. Again, I shook my head and shrugged, unable to verbally communicate that I could not read English any more than I could speak it. She proudly opened the book to an inscription on the first page. I could only read the name that someone had filled in. It read, Presented to Bill Wetzel. Wim's dad, Willie Wetzel, is the founder of Pukalon, the art that I train. This next story is all about how Willie, with Wim's help, got his first students. Mom was practicing her English by reading the local newspaper when a headline caught her attention. 
Willie, a local policeman, is in the hospital. He was nearly beaten to death by a street thug last night. Don't they get training to defend themselves? I don't know, Jerry. Nobody knows karate in this community. You could teach them. Willie, they should be trained to defend themselves. Why don't you talk to the police department and volunteer to train them to defend themselves against those hoodlums? I don't speak good English, so no one would understand how much I could help. You could try. Take Wim with you and let him explain it to them. Dad's interest was piqued, and he pondered the idea for a long time. Finally, the desire to give back to the country that had given him so much won over his fear. I called the police department to make an appointment with the new Brighton chief of police. My first challenge was convincing the police department to take an 11-year-old seriously about making an appointment with the chief to offer a training program for the police force on how to defend themselves. My persistence finally wore them down, and after a lot of reluctant skepticism, the chief hesitantly agreed to see us. Not confident in my own English skills, we boldly walked into the police chief's office. He got up from his desk and introduced himself and politely shook Dad's hand and then mine and returned to his desk chair and smiled. Okay, son, now what is this all about? I inhaled deeply and in one breath, I blurted out the offer that Dad wanted me to translate for him. Sir, my mom read about the officer that was beaten to death. My dad is an expert in jujitsu and karate, and he is volunteering to teach your police officers for free. He would only need the police department to supply workout mats, punching and kicking bags, and a place to teach classes. The chief leaned over his desk with squinted eyes, furrowed brows, and spoke. Well, son, he paused and raised his eyes to the ceiling and bit his lower lip. He remained quiet for quite a while, and the only sound was the ticking of the clock. I was sure he was going to throw us out of his office. My mind began to race. Will Dad be angry at me? Will he think it's my fault for not doing a good job translating? Will he punish me for not convincing this man? I felt Dad nudge me on the shoulder to signal me to say more to him. My breath caught in my throat, and the blood drained from my face. I swallowed hard took a deep breath and squeaked, yes, sir. Speaking slowly so that I would understand, he continued, ask your dad when he can start. The classes were held at the New Brighton National Guard Armory, and the news spread quickly to every Beaver County Police Department and the Pennsylvania State Police in the Beaver Valley area. With no financial compensation, over the next three years, Dad taught hundreds of police officers how to defend themselves. Some of them became instructors. He earned the respect of the police officers in the tri-state area, including Pennsylvania, Ohio, and West Virginia. One of the policemen was so grateful for Dad's mentoring and teaching program that he offered to help him get started opening his classes to the general public to generate some income for our family. Here's a cool story about Wim's early years, teaching Pukalon in his dad's school. While still offering free lessons to police officers in the New Brighton National Guard Armory, dad rented another building in Rochester. Advertising classes for $3 a month in the local newspapers brought a new audience through the school doors. If a potential student was unable to pay for classes, dad waived the fee. 
He'd been training Roy and me, and Roy is one of his brothers. He'd been training Roy and me since we were eight and nine years old. And by 10 and 11 years of age, we were teaching adults to defend themselves. So much for child labor laws. Classes were held on Saturdays and Sundays, but the school was open every night for workouts and practices. Roy and I were required to be there every night after school to provide additional training to anyone who needed it. Although Jim was not teaching yet, and Jim is Wim's brother, who is still teaching, and we're going to get to meet him soon, too. Although Jim was not teaching yet, he was being groomed for the same fate. We slept at home, went to school, but lived at the karate school. The crux of martial arts is not in a person's strength or size, but leverage, agility, and ability to identify body pressure points. The opponent's momentum and weight are used against him or her. Some of the new adult students were skeptical about two scrawny pipsqueaks teaching them how to fight. One antidote that became a classic in our family was about an adult student who outweighed me by well over 100 pounds. He had just begun the program and was clumsily practicing some basic moves. I noticed that he was not using proper body mechanics, so I walked over to him and offered to give him some instructions. He looked down at me and began to laugh. What do you think you can do, little man? Tell your dad that I want a grown-up instructor. Roy was close by helping another student and noticed what was happening. He sauntered over with a wide, sly grin. No, just attack him any way you want and let's see what he can teach you. The student gave Roy an exaggerated eye roll and came at me attempting a chokehold. He was so much bigger than me that I simply grabbed his thumb and bent it backwards and let his momentum and weight carry him over my small body. He hit the mat with full force and while still holding his aching thumb, I rolled over on top of him and gave him a simulated karate chop across his throat. There are some really hard stories in this book, too. Life in the Wetzel family was not always easy. I'm not going to read them here, but you can always get Wim's book. I wanted to share this one last story, though. This is what happened when Wim decided to leave home and make a new life for himself. Wim decided to see if he could get involved in the military and get out of the house. I passed every aspect of the physical until the very last part. Then the doctor ordered, stand up straight with both feet flat on the ground as if you're standing at attention. I proudly obeyed as he watched my arches hug the floor. You have flat feet, young man. I cannot qualify you to enter the military. You must go home as a 4F. I had waited for this moment all of my life, and now he's telling me to go home. No, sir, I am not flat-footed. Please check again. He was probably thinking that I was the only one there that was not faking insanity. Are you questioning my professional judgment? No, sir, but I am not flat-footed. Yes, you are flat-footed. Sir, may I speak to you in private? We entered a small secluded cubicle. Doctor, I just became a citizen of the United States, and I want to serve my country to repay it for what it's done for my family and me. Please don't write me up as blink, being flat-footed and destroy all the dreams I've had to serve. I continued by explaining my family's story from the POW camps to our escape from, the, from Indonesia and our immigration to America. 
He looked at me with a blank stare and seemed to be contemplating his decision. I was holding my breath, knowing that my fate was in his hands. Finally, he answered. In that case, let me check again. Stand at attention and curl your toes inward as if you're trying to pick something up from the floor with them, he said. Hmm, you're right. I misdiagnosed you and you are not flat-footed. Please get dressed and move on to the oath of enlistment room and induction ceremony. Wim's book is full of stories, stories about how his parents met in Indonesia, stories about their life in Holland and life in the United States. He writes about what it was like to grow up in his family and the many adventures he had over the course of his long life. There are also some transcripts of a trial that really rocked his family um, and that became very well known in some martial arts circles. Personally, I feel grateful to know Wim and to know his brother Jim, too. Okay, here comes the interview. I just wanted to take a sec and read you a few stories from Wim's book. Hi, listeners, and welcome back. Today, I'm really excited to introduce you to Wim Wetzel. I first met Wim a few years back when I was processing through the dissolution of the martial arts community I'd spent over 30 years of my life with. There were secrets and there was tax fraud, ethics violations, and abusive power dynamics, and all together they'd caused the splitting apart of people that I thought of as my family. And it was a really hard time for me, and it was when I was trying to wrap my head around all of this that I found Wim's book, Empty Open Hands. And in this book, Wim described his life growing up with the Wetzel family. His dad, Willie Wetzel, was the founder of Pukalan Chimindi, which was the martial art I'd been training and loved so dearly. And I was, it was just this amazing book to read, to find this person named Wim. And I reached out to him and what a treasure it's been. Wim and his wife have visited my school. My husband and I have visited them. And over these years, Wim has shared his journey and his history and his deep love and respect for his family's story. So this podcast, the Empowerment Podcast by Naga, is all about empowerment, self-defense, and Wim's life and lessons embody this in so many ways. Wim, I'm so grateful to have you here with me today. Thank you for joining me. Really happy. As always, I will include a link to Wim's book in this episode's description and also on the Empowerment Project Community's Facebook group. So welcome, Wim. Happy to have you here. Thank you, Sylvia. Um, I appreciate you inviting me to participate in this event. I truly feel honored and privileged to do so and answer any questions that the, you may have. Can we start by hearing a little bit about the kinds of things that you experienced growing up? Like maybe start by describing your family or tell us a little bit about your mom and dad. My immediate family comes from a history of wealth and power in the island nation of Indonesia. My paternal grandparents were major power brokers in the management, storage, and distribution of the nation's natural resources to the world, such as coffee, rubber, timber, palm oil, and cocoa. My maternal grandfather, or as I call him, Opa, was assigned to, by the Dutch government in Holland as the su superintendent of the police forces in Jakarta, Indonesia. As a result of these powerful relationships, the Wetzel family lived a life of luxury and privilege before World War II. 
but that ended suddenly when the Japanese invasion of the island nation occurred. Mom and dad were captured by the Japanese at the very start of the war and spent over four years in Japanese prisoner of war camps. After the war, my parents met at a Royal Dutch Air Force military dance and ultimately married, had three children, and moved back to Holland. Life was going to be very different in Holland. Life under dad's reign was harsh as he raised us in a military disciplined environment. We lived in fear most of the time, but we survived because he did teach us self-discipline to the extreme. Where dad was a cruel and strict disciplinarian, mom was compassionate, caring, and loving. Wow. I've heard a lot of your stories in, in reading your book. Could you tell us some of the more challenging experiences that you had growing up? Like, what was it like? It was a tough environment. Uh, we never knew what was going to happen from one minute to the next or one day to the next. Um, yeah. As I joined the military and served in war myself, I found out that uh, war, as my mother and father experienced, um, causes a lot of emotional and mental problems eventually, uh, such as PTSD. Um, but we learned to overcome his demands by just doing what he asked us to do when he asked us to do it. Um, we learned to meet his demands for perfection in our own ways. Since I was the oldest and expected to be the leader in the family and the most disciplined sibling, I uh, became pretty self-disciplined. Roy, on the other hand, was the strongest physically, and he often competed with Dad and, and uh, confronted him about issues or tasks he demanded of Roy. Jimmy, my youngest brother, was expected to be a shadow or a non-entity in Dad's eyes. He did not exist as far as Dad was concerned. My sister Jane was a proverbial apple in Dad's eyes and could never do wrong. So we had internal conflicts all the time between the siblings, which ultimately affect us emotionally throughout our lives. Yeah, I, I can imagine. And what you're saying is so true, like growing up in a, in a family that has experienced such trauma is going to have its huge impact. And um, I mean, this is the, the trauma that you experienced growing up. But can we talk about, because What's so interesting to me is that this art that I love, that you grew up doing, living, it, it's based in self-defense and has a very beautiful philosophy about self-defense. Could you tell us about that and how important it is? Well, self-defense to me is exactly what it is meant to be. Never use our training for offensive or indestructive ways. As Dad taught us, whenever possible, Back away from any fight, but never turn your back on an aggressor. But when there is a no way out, fighting with all your might, your skills and aggression are called for. Do not stop until the aggressor is completely disabled. It ultimately means that you do whatever is necessary to survive. Right. And that is a lesson that you learned from your family. Yes. So could you tell us about, um, and we'll talk a little bit more about that in a bit, but could you tell us also about leaving? Because, uh, you know, you grow up and you're living in this house where things are pretty hard. Um, I hope people read your book because it's so incredible and um, has now been, now you've got the, you know, a new title and, and 
it's been reworked and we'll talk more about it at the end. But so you're growing up, you're living in this really harsh and very hard situation that you learned a ton from, um, but you decide to go into the military. So how did that decision impact how you grew and into manhood and how you processed your childhood and the suffering that you experienced? Could you talk a little bit to us about what that was like? Yes. After living all of my life uh, prior to joining the Air Force, I suffered a lot of internal conflict at, at, at the home. Uh, so leaving home to join the Air Force for 24 years was a blessing and a lifelong dream. I just couldn't get away from the house fast enough. I used the discipline that dad drilled into me to become a successful top non-commissioned officer in the Air Force, as well as a top training and employee development executive in three different companies after I left the military. I faced every challenge head on, and some of them very tough. I was able to actually meet with Japanese soldiers that ran uh, NEC, the company I worked for, and we talked about the Japanese prisoner of war situation and how my parents actually uh, were captured and, and trained, treated pretty badly in, in war. Hmm. I actually found one officer I worked for who actually ran one of the prisoner of war camps over there, and he and I had some wow. serious open discussions. But one day he asked me, he says, why do you even want to work for the Japanese after everything that has happened to you and your family? I said, the war was many years ago, and I decided to live my life in a better, more peaceful manner. As I teach in my book, I often live by the mantra that if you don't ask, you don't get. And uh, that has served me very well throughout my life. Yeah, and you touched on something I'd love to hear more about. You said um, when we were talking earlier um, at an earlier time that you you were talking about the trauma that you experienced growing up and how you survived it and how important it is that you feel it is to move through it, to move past it, to move beyond it. And you just mentioned that again. I'd love to hear more about like what does that mean to you and how have you been able to do that? I could have given up early in life since nothing I did seemed to satisfy my father. I found out after joining the Air Force that dad bragged about me to everyone he knew at work, at the karate school, but he never praised me directly for my accomplishments as I was growing up. And that gave me a feeling of self-hate. You know, I just didn't care much for anything or trying to do the best that I could because I wasn't going to be rewarded for it. So I developed a severe right. self-hate and, and inferiority complex that followed me until I reached about 27 years of age, soon after I had a major negative inf effect in my life. But when I finally discovered the strength and power I had as a man, there was nothing in the world that could stop me. So this is this, um, like there are so many different schools and philosophies about how to handle trauma and move through it. And, um, and this is, this is your way and your voice and what you have to say is so unique. Could you tell us about your philosophy of empty open hands? Well, yes, I can. Um, we all come into this life with nothing and we'll leave it with nothing. You just cannot take anything with you except your honor, your reputation and memories of the good and bad that others have of you. Empty open hands simply means that if confront, confronted with aggressors or life challenges, 
you may find yourself with nothing, no tools, no weapons, or any way out of the problem or situation. It is then that you fall back to the tools that God and your life's experiences provided you. Fight back hard and without guilt in order to survive. That is what my dad taught us. Um, despite mm. all the negative things that happened to us as children, he did take the time to teach us right from wrong and how to fate, uh, you know, face all confrontations. Yeah, and you describe this really beautifully in your book. So speaking of which, let's talk about your book. So for listeners who want to know more, Wim's first book is called Empty Open Hands, and his newest book, which is more of an autobiographical novel, is called Surviving Death by a Thousand Cuts. Can you tell us about it? Yes, I can. Um, I published the first book over a 40-year period of my life. Every time I started to write uh, information in the book, Something would stop me. It was all really dependent on my state of mind at the moment. Then while I was recovering from a major open heart surgery and a broken back surgery, I realized that my time on this earth was very limited. So I finished writing with a vengeance. At one point, I wrote for almost three days nonstop, no sleep, hardly anything to eat until it was finally completed. But that came with a cost, as I found later that there were many editorial mistakes and the timeline for the chapters were convoluted and confusing. Therefore, I received many requests from the Pukulan community, uh, people that bought the book, uh, to clarify the history of the art. I did that in the second version. The secondary title of the book turned out a lot of readers off and potential buyers off. That secondary title is a, a guide to breaking the cycle of family abuse and trauma. Uh, people just didn't want to read about that. So they wanted to know about empty open hands and what was going on behind that. So I decided to rewrite the book with the help of my lifelong and dear friend, Penny. Penny is a major player in my books. It took us two years to publish Surviving Death by a Thousand Cuts. And what is the most important message you want to convey in your books? No matter how troubled you may be, or feelings that you have no escape from whatever troubles you're in. Do not ever give up, regardless of how hopeless life and your existence appears at any moment in time. Reach out to your family, your friends, and even strangers for help. In my deepest moments of grief, pain, and despair, and the feelings of actually ending my life, I had the courage to ask for help with the mantra, if you don't ask, you don't get. It never failed me. Yeah, thank you for that. And um, we're about close to wrap-up time, but do you, is there anything else that you want to say to listeners or any other thing you want to talk about? There's so many things that uh, I could talk about. So I've been working with uh, another lady that lives about 50 miles from here, and she came, she read the book and contacted me just like you did. And we have become pretty close friends with Vicki and Judy and myself and her children. Um, she is the kind of person that has the same kind of feelings about life and people that you do. Um, she called me one day and said, I have a really young friend, a girl that has had a life of severe pain and misery, emotional pain and misery. Is there a chance for you to meet with us and talk about, you know, different things that are affecting her life and maybe turn her life around? Well, to make a long story short, they did come over, and uh, we met, we've met. we met four times now. She read the book, 
after the first meeting, and her life has completely changed. She went mm. from being in deep depression, uh, a marriage that was failing, uh, parents and a mother and father and siblings that actually threw them threw her out of their lives, and she has become a very strong uh, person who is self-disciplined, uh, faces problems head on, and the result of all this, the word has gotten out that this book has helped them. And Judy is working with a lot of veterans right now who are now going to start coming over here in groups. And I'm going to be working oh, with cool. them as well. So uh, this thing is really taking off. That is awesome. That is like, that is a journey of empowerment, right? Just like you, like from this really hard, challenging situation into a different kind of life where you're yeah. actually out being of service to other people. Well, I did, yeah, that came out of nowhere, by the way. It's wrap-up time, people. Wim Wetzel, you have become a very dear friend over the past few years. And though your journey to empowerment and self-defense had tragic beginnings, it's become overwhelmingly beautiful and powerful and full of love and successes. I hope listeners are inspired by you and want to know more. So here's a shameless plug for Wim Wetzel and his books, Empty Open Hands and Surviving Death by a Thousand Cuts. Buy them, read them, and be awed by the life and times of Wim and the Wetzel family. Hey, Wim, thank you so much for taking time with me today. Thank you. It's affirmation time. This is how I end every self-defense class. It's kind of cheesy, but it's very cool, and this is how it works. We're going to do like a little call and response. If you can say this out loud, if you can repeat after me, do it, because it's important, I think, for you to hear your own voice. But if you can't, like if you're on a crowded subway or someplace where it's embarrassing, don't worry. You can also just say it inside your head. Okay, so I'm going to say something and you're going to repeat it after me. I'm going to give you space to do that. And at the end, we're going to say yes. Here we go. Repeat after me. I am worth protecting. I love myself. I belong I deserve to take up space on planet Earth. I am a strong and powerful person. Yes! Woohoo! And hey, as a wrap up, will you do me a favor? Will you do all the things that you do when there's a podcast? Like, will you tell your friends? Will you subscribe? Will you come back each week? communicate with me, review this podcast, like all those things to help get more bandwidth, help more people find out about it. That would be super awesome. Take a deep breath. You are amazing. Thank you for being with me. See you next time.